The Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I think it might have been the day after Halloween that I saw the first Christmas-themed advertisement for the season. It was pretty odd in the first week of November to see Santa on his sleigh plowing through some snow. Probably weird that the sleigh was a red Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> I mentioned this to a group of my friends not long ago, and everyone agreed with this kind of feeling of not yet, not yet with the Christmas commercials, not yet with the holiday shopping, not yet with the snow. Some of my friends agreed uh, that once Thanksgiving hit, okay, all bets are off. You can plunge full on into the Christmas holiday season. But for those of us liturgically minded Christians, we remember that Christmas season is a real thing, but it starts on December 25th. It doesn't end there. There's this whole other season that comes before Christmas, this season of Advent, which we kick off today. And in fact, on the theme of misplaced holidays, uh, liturgical pros will know that uh, we should be saying Happy New Year to one another. For t the first Sunday of Advent is the first Sunday in the start to the new liturgical calendar. So you, you can add today to January 1st for the civil calendar, or July 1st for the fiscal calendar, or sometime in late August for those of us in the academic world for the new year starting. Today marks the beginning of the church's new year. Yet even as we've begun a new liturgical year, we begin this year with a sense of that not yet, which my friends expressed at seeing a Christmas ad in early November. In fact, I think, I think the, the season of Advent can be summed up by that little phrase, not yet. It's not yet Christmas. We do not yet celebrate the birth of Christ. We do not yet celebrate his coming. As hard as it is for us 21st century Americans, we today are only beginning a season of waiting. And moreover, in the church's wisdom, the season of Advent, the beginning of the liturgical year, has come to be associated with another not yet. That's the looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And I think this makes sense on two levels. First, if we're thinking about a feast commemorating the first coming of Christ, Christmas, we may also be led to have our minds drawn to contemplating the second coming of Christ. And secondly, it seems to me at least, it's, it's easy to associate our minds with beginnings and ends. The end of the life that we know here is the second coming of Christ, which has a new life being uh, coming with him. But this end, both in terms of conclusion and goal, sets the trajectory we begin anew every liturgical year. And so we think in this season about the second coming of Christ. And I admit, in my experience as an evangelical Christian, it seems to me there's kind of two kinds of Christians when it comes to thinking about the second coming of Christ, those who think way too much about it and those who think way too little about it. I'm probably in the latter category there. Um, for whatever reason, thinking about end times charts and signs of the times hasn't really informed my like, theological imagination. Maybe I've gotten too comfortable with this like, not yet and sometimes fall into a not ever, which is not a theologically appropriate place to be. But the creed says it, and I believe it, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So I say that up front. So if you're like me, just want to give us permission to jump in to thinking about the second coming of Christ in this season, to jump into the, the not yet, knowing and believing full well that there will be a time when the not yet comes to a close. 
and we're helped in our effort to meditate on Christ's second coming by our startling readings for this morning. Our gospel reading is from Luke 21 today, but I think context is key in interpretation of any literature, any passage, so we need to see chapter 21 in Luke's narrative as uh, in the context of the overall arc of Christ's life. So here we can go all the way back to Luke 19 to understand where we are in the story. And what chapter 19 tells us is that Jesus has entered Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. Jesus had his triumphal entry, and the teachings of the following chapters, including this week's lesson, takes place in that momentous week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And if you remember Palm Sunday, this is where Jesus is heralded as a king whose kingdom has arrived. And yet we know, because we know the full story, in a sense that kingdom has not yet fully arrived. So Luke chapter 21 opens with Luke describing an exchange between Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem in the shadow of the temple. And Luke writes, When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. That's a rather foreboding thing to say, to declare the destruction of the beautiful and colossal temple that stood before them. So already in the opening of this chapter, we have a sort of end times motif uh, coming before us. And this, I think, serves to orient us readers to further foreboding, perhaps even disturbing utterances that Jesus makes in the rest of this chapter. At this point, the disciples are naturally asking about this destruction of the temple, when it's going to happen, and how people are going to know that it's going to happen. And in response, Jesus speaks of, speaks of wars and insurrections. He goes on and says, there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. It's in this context that we hear our reading from today, from starting in verse 25, that there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is a distressing scene, sort of an adventure in astronomy and meteorology. What in the world could this be like? Signs in the sky, confused nations, roaring in the sea. We're supposed to be thinking about all of this while we're getting ready for the little baby Jesus asleep on the hay? Well, what I, what I think these foreboding end times descriptions point to is that meditating on the second coming of Christ is supposed to upend our expectations. We expect, for instance, a giant temple to remain standing. We expect the sun and the moon and the stars to continue as usual. We expect our daily lives not to be faced by wars and insurrections, plagues, famines, or earthquakes. But Christ's kingdom is not what we would expect. Christ is not the king we would expect. And so rather than locking into ways of thinking that anticipate a king and a kingdom we do expect, these meditations on the second coming of Christ ought to motivate us to work diligently to be alert in unexpected ways for the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. 
we jump down further in this chapter, verse 36, we hear Jesus issue this call to alertness. He says, be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus tells us to be alert, for we do not know the day or the hour. To be alert because we don't know what day Christ will come back. We don't know when the hour will be. And I would suggest that we need to be alert to prepare for the unexpected nature of Christ's kingdom. During Advent, we put ourselves on guard in order that we might be alert as our Lord instructs. A lot of the things we do liturgically are, are pedagogical. They teach us things about Christ and his kingdom. Even the colors of the vestments we wear are object lessons. White is the color for celebration, red for feasts associated with the Holy Spirit. The long green season is a growing time. And purple is the color of preparation. Both Advent and Lent use purple because they are seasons whose focus is preparation for a major celebration, Christmas or Easter. There's some dispute among liturgical nerds like myself about whether Advent is also a penitential season like Lent. Lent is clearly a penitential season. Some think it's the only penitential season. For my own part, I think Advent is focused as a preparatory season, but there are many ways that one might prepare for a major celebration. One way of preparing is through self-examination, taking stock of where one is in one's spiritual or relational life. In the secular world, we get all these uh, reflective pieces at the end of December, early January, in, in conjunction with the civil New Year's Day, but liturgically, here we are. Our New Year has begun. And in our self-reflection, and our self-examination, it may in fact be the case that we identify an area or areas where a bit of penitence would be really helpful. Liturgically, again, for pedagogical purposes, for Advent, we in our liturgy have shifted the confession portion of our service to the opening of the liturgy. And today, this opening included the great litany with its repeated requests for God to hear our prayers. Next week, our opening will include the exhortation, which invites us to examine our consciences. And the final two weeks of Advent will include the Decalogue, placing God's law clearly before our gaze. And the hope here is that our, our preparation in this season will be augmented by highlighting penitence, confession, and contrition. And to my mind, self-examination, confession, and penitence like this is an unexpected thing to do. Seems to me rather, um, rather natural, rather what one would expect, not to examine oneself to discern those areas where we've wronged God or our neighbors. We don't expect someone to be pointing out their own flaws or shortcomings, let alone their sins and offenses. And yet this is what our penitential practices call us to do. But again, the liturgy is primarily pedagogical in this regard. I want to commend to you all, commend to myself, not just engaging in self-examination and confession on Sunday morning, but instead to push these practices into our daily lives as well. What if this Advent we didn't just prepare for Christmas by means of shopping lists or recipes or even red Mercedes Benzes, but 
but also sought to confess our sins to God and to one another, identifying those ways that we've not been living in love, charity, and peace with our friends and families and communities, and instead seek to make amends for our offenses. That would be a rather unexpected way to get ready for Christmas, but Christ is an unexpected king whose reign is over an unexpected kingdom. Advent is a season of preparation, preparation for Christmas, but also preparation for the second coming of Christ in which he will fully establish his kingdom. As our reading from Zechariah put it, the Lord will become king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. This is an unexpected kingdom and meditating on its arrival ought to motivate us to engage in some unexpected practices like self-examination, confession of our sins, and making amends to those we have wronged. So I want to invite you this season in your prayers, in your scripture reading, in your quiet thoughts to be alert to this theme of Christ's return. And from this, take steps to confess your sins to God and to one another as we prepare for the full realization of Christ's kingdom that has not yet arrived. I'm going to end with praying a collect that we often use for morning prayer on Sundays, which I think helpfully captures a bit of what we're about in this season of not yet. Now let's pray. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through the same, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.